One of the greatest questions of our day is this. What does it mean to be a flourishing human person? There's no social consensus as to what it means to be human. Even in Christian churches, it's often difficult to discover a cohesive answer to this question. We live in an era when we spend a great deal of time deconstructing totalizing narratives. Where do we go to understand how to reconstruct what it means to be a flourishing human person? In Ephesians 4, 22 to 24, Paul the Apostle describes the flourishing person in this way. Put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. This new self, being created after the likeness of God, is a recapitulation of our original creation. Because in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28, God says, Let us make humankind in our image, after our likeness, male and female. God created humankind in his own image. So in the beginning of time, we're created in the likeness of God, and after resurrection, we are recreated in the likeness of God. The best way of understanding what is meant by likeness of God is, of course, Jesus of Nazareth. He is the exact imprint of God, Hebrews 1.3, and the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1.15. If we want to know what it means to be a flourishing human person, we don't need to look any further than the life of Jesus of Nazareth. Yen Zimmerman is a Christian philosopher and theologian who is currently J.I. Packer Chair of Theology at Regent College in Canada. And he suggests that in Christ, we believe in a God who became human, was crucified, and rose from the dead. This is a fundamentally shocking statement. In Christ, we believe in a God who became human, was crucified, and is risen. We participate in the life of Christ when we participate in all three of these embodied movements. As humans, we live into the vision of continued presence of God with the human nature because Christ in us is the hope of glory, Colossians 1.27. Our Ephesians 1 reading today listed all the ways that we are now since the resurrection in Christ. So today, I'd like to spend a little time considering what it means for the church to occupy a space in the city as a living, dynamic image of new creation in Christ. Jesus has given us three gracious invitations that are invited to help us with this task. Each invitation from Jesus is uniquely interrelated with at least one of these three movements of incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection. So let's begin with invitation number one. In Mark 1, 16 to 20, Jesus calls out these words to business owners who are mending nets by the sea. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of the human race. Jesus called Peter and Andrew, James and John, to follow. That was all that was required. Follow me. This is not a call to pursue a task. It's a call to follow a person. The ancient Israelites followed God. They were led by a fiery, cloudy pillar that represented God's glory presence with them. 
You can read about that a bit more in Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 9 to 12. That incredible glory presence of God was now embodied in Jesus of Nazareth. He would lead his disciples and invite them to follow him into the world. John said, we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. I think we sometimes get this invitation a little upside down. We think the call is to figure out how to become fishers of the human race. That process of becoming is the work of Jesus in our life. Jesus says, I will make you into fishers of the human race. Follow me. As we follow, Jesus does this work in us through our proximity to that glory presence through the Holy Spirit. In 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18, Paul reminds us, and we all, with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. As we follow Jesus and remain in proximity with him, we are changed by his spirit into his image and transformed to become fishers of the human race. When God took on flesh in Jesus, he also gave us a pattern of life that we might follow him. Paul the Apostle says, follow me as I follow Christ in 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. If we feel distant, cold, far removed from the glory presence of Jesus, this is often because we are not following Jesus' pattern of life. The whole sermon series we've just come through in John's Gospel for the last few months has been showing us the pattern of the divine life in Jesus of Nazareth. So what do we see in Jesus that gives us a pattern for reconstructing a flourishing human life? Well, Jesus was a carpenter. He worked with wood and saw, plane and hammer to make a living for his mother and half-sisters and brothers. It turns out that Christian nurses, teachers, doctors, guardians and foster parents, musicians, pastors, architects, politicians, mothers, professors, sewing groups, fathers and engineers all have a role to play in mending the world. Our vocation the work of our hands is important to God. We know this because Jesus put on flesh and took up a vocation. God in Christ became a carpenter. Jesus also went to wedding parties and celebrated the institution of marriage by turning water into wine, great wine. Jesus attended traditional holy days and feasts for at least 30 years with his family. Family relations have a role to play in tying together broken pieces of the world. Family's important to God. Jesus entered into our world in a family. Jesus also took retreats to the seaside and to mountains. He went to house parties. He made fish fry on the beach. He went on picnics and he held children on his knees. Jesus showed us how every aspect of what we call the mundane human life matters. Mattering is glory, and the human life matters to God. God put on flesh, and he participated in all of it, yet without sin, Hebrews 2 tells us. 
As James K.A. Smith would say, the triune God of creation traffics in ashes and dust, blood and bodies, fish and bread, and he pronounces all of it very good. Jesus also spent a good deal of time proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of heaven, especially to the poor. Proclaiming the gospel with words is a practice that is part of the pattern of Jesus' life. Jesus also lived in interdependence with his father. Every single practice of Jesus was in complete alignment with the will of God. John records this when he says, Jesus did nothing of his own accord. He only did those things he saw his father doing. This interdependence with his father was exemplified in the practice of prayer. He often rose early to pray. We see him praying as he breaks bread. We see him interceding for others. We see him praying in temptation. We see him praying in great trial. Jesus also invested in outcasts, those considered too sinful or too broken, sexually exploited women, tax collectors, lepers, those who fell short of the standard of cultural norms. Jesus brought his glory presence to the most broken aspects of embodied life. Jesus fed stomachs, he restored limbs, he repaired vision, he staunched blood flow, he resurrected lifeless bodies, and most of all, he spent time sitting at tables all over Palestine, sharing meals with those that others would consider other. Jesus went out of his way, off of well-traveled paths to be with the outcast. The disciples followed Jesus to these very unfamiliar places where they found themselves like we do, disoriented and confused sometimes. Why are you talking to this woman? Do you know what she does for a living? Why are you with these Samaritans? They're a despised group of people. What are you doing with children? They have no political value. Why are you healing the lepers? They don't even come back and thank you. And why did you heal that blind man? I think it's his sin that has put him in this condition. Jesus lived in a pluralist culture with many religions, many races, and many subcultures in the nexus of Palestine. Jesus created a formative space where his followers could learn the habits of the heart of God by following Jesus into rhythms of life that were upside down and countercultural. Following Jesus into uncomfortable places is challenging and costly work. Matthew Kamink, who is a public theologian at Fuller Seminary, shares a great example of following Jesus into challenging spaces in a European city when he writes about the Reverend Keyes Sobrandi of Holland. Sobrandi is staunchly evangelical and firmly insists that Jesus is the only way, the only truth, and the only life worth having. He was not by any stretch a model of understanding pluralist society and how Christians might embody the presence of Jesus to their neighbors. When asked about the influx of Muslim refugees into his home country, he complained that they created a lot of trouble for the Netherlands. He complained about Muslim poverty, crime, dependency on the government, and terrorism. He insisted publicly that Islam was a false religion, and he called Allah a desert demon spirit. Sabrandi's attitude about Islam made his response to Theo van Gogh's murder in 2004 very confounding. Across the Netherlands, tensions were running high, mosques and churches were being attacked and even burned down. 
According to K-Mink, Sabrandi responded in this way. He walked to his neighborhood mosque. He knocked on the door, and to the absolute shock of the Muslims huddled inside for safety, he declared that he would stand guard outside the mosque every night until the Dutch attacks ceased. In the days, weeks, and months that followed, Sabrandi called other churches in the area, and more and more Christians joined him, circling and guarding mosques throughout the region every night for more than three months. Why? What possible reason could this extremely conservative Christian give to explain his actions? What motivated him, of all people, to do this? Sabrandi recounted no stories of past friendships or even dialogues with Muslims. He was not inspired by modern dogmas of liberty, or fraternity, or equality. When pressed to explain his actions, he simply replied, Jesus. Jesus commanded me to love my neighbor, my enemy too. Sabrandi followed the pattern of Jesus' life. He went to the local mosque to watch over and guard what mattered most to someone he considered an enemy. As you heard, of Sabrandi's quite quiet response of protecting love. Did your thoughts wonder as mine did to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, healing the ear of Malchus, a man who set out to take him captive for the sake of executing him? Sabrandi was the embodiment of the glory presence of Jesus in his city. His church occupied a space in a global city as a living, dynamic image of resurrected life. Invitation number two. We began with the invitation to follow, and now Jesus offers us a second invitation with a gracious promise to help us in this journey towards reconstructing human flourishing. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his justice, and all these things will be added unto you. Much like the previous invitation, there's a very distinct and simple action that we are invited to take here. Seek the kingdom of God and his justice. The Greek word interpreted justice in Matthew 6 is dikaiesone. I probably pronounced that wrong for all you Greek scholars. It could also be interpreted as righteousness. However, justice might be a better rendition here because Jesus is clearly in the context speaking about righteousness in a public sense as related to the kingdom of God. The word for public righteousness is often translated justice. The invitation was simple. Seek first before anything else the kingdom of God and his justice. And if we do this, All these things will be added to us. In the Matthew 6 context, where this invitation is found, the added things are what we eat, what we drink, and what we wear. In the Sinai wilderness wanderings of the Israelites, as they followed that cloudy, fiery presence of God, he provided manna from heaven, water from a rock, and clothes that never wear out. Why? Because the Israelites were on a journey and they were seeking the kingdom of God. So all these things were added to them. It is trust in our Heavenly Father's care and provision for these physical needs that makes us free to seek the kingdom of God and his justice. In this last year in America, there's been an elevated level of anxiety, especially around ethical issues related to the pandemic, 
the killing of George Floyd, and the federal election. Lines have been drawn in the sand, the progressive left and the conservative right facing off around very diverse imaginings of the sort of kingdom they want to live in here on earth, the sort of kingdom that they believe will create human flourishing. Arguments and debates dominate social media and prompt articles like this one in The Atlantic this month, titled, America Without God, written by Shadi Hamid. It suggests the following, quote, as religious faith has declined, ideological intensity has risen. Will the quest for secular redemption through politics doom the American idea? End of quote. In other words, as America continues to slide into post-Christian secularism, the human soul still seeks a kingdom that aligns with the longings of the human heart. The human person cannot live apart from hope. Now political parties are being freighted with godlike ability to answer the longings of the human heart for a vision of human flourishing that is satisfying. In this cultural moment, in the midst of divided nation, divided families, and often divided churches, what does it mean to seek first the kingdom of God and his justice? The concept of the kingdom of God is found throughout the biblical record, and the most basic definition is that the kingdom of God is the rule of God. The kingdom of God spans between the most intimate desires of our hearts and the largest structures that shape the character of the world. When we seek first the kingdom of God, we have a way of looking at culture. We choose to consider it through the lens of identity-forming practices that following Jesus has given us. Following Jesus gave us a blueprint of what matters to the king. James K. Smith, in his book, Desiring the Kingdom, reminds us that the question we bring to culture is not primarily what does this institution represent or what does this policy mean for us or what is the message of this film. The question we should be asking is this. What vision of human flourishing is implicit in this? There is a picture of human flourishing and a particular kingdom brand in every policy, party, and institution. And that vision of a kingdom is carried along in the practices that each promotes. It's important to understand that institutions and parties command our allegiance, they vie for our passions, and they aim to capture our hearts with a very particular vision of the kingdom. The very first way we seek the kingdom of God is by entering into a stance of recognition we need to recognize how we are being formed by the kingdoms of this world. That shaping occurs more through practices than ideas. Just as practices of the kingdom of God end up shaping us more than ideas. This is one of the reasons why God put the practices of Jesus' life on exhibition in the Gospels for us to observe. And that's what we've been studying for months in the Gospel of John. Jesus explicitly gave his church a practice that we often reference as communion or Eucharist just hours before he was betrayed unto death. And this practice, which should be regularly observed, is meant to reorient us to the kingdom of God. Communion as a practice is visceral and earthed, and it tells us what the kingdom of God is like. 
Communion tells us the story of a diverse people united in one hunger for the bread of life. We depend on it for our very existence. It is our singular source of ultimate satisfaction. Communion tells us also the story of one sacrifice. We all come to the cross as sinners and through faith we all leave forgiven. Communion is the grand leveler. It tells us of a past, a present, and a future that matter to God who is timeless. Reflect on 2 Corinthians eleven twenty six. Do this now in remembrance of me, past. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he should come, future. Communion reminds us that we are joining a story already in progress with a trajectory that culminates in drinking wine with Jesus in the realized kingdom to come. And that future kingdom shapes everything in the now. In communion, we also proclaim the Lord's death until he come. The practice of communion defines reality for us. We should expect that we will suffer, that we will sorrow, that we will have times of grave distress and anxiety. After all, until the kingdom is fully here, we live under the shadow of the cross. Jesus left us this practice because he knows that it is practices that form our hearts, fill our imaginations, and renew our minds. We seek first the kingdom of God and his justice by first recognizing that we're being formed by the kingdoms of the world, and then secondly, by choosing daily practices that embody what matters to our king. We had a wedding in this building on Saturday. Have you ever watched a just married bride and groom getting pictures on the Boston Common as they walk through the park? You will see people put aside whatever they're doing and begin to clap for them. Nationality, age, gender, or understanding of marriage do not matter. When people in the park see a wedding party, the applause begins. Everyone within seeing and hearing distance in the park turns, sees a bride and groom, and claps. Why? Because embodied practices that speak of a value rich with meaning touch us all at a level that transcends our differences. They touch us at the very core of what it means to be human. The bride and groom image a very basic need, the need to be loved. We all need to believe in a happily ever after love story, even the most suspicious and cynical of us all, if only for a moment. And hands instinctively raise from wherever they are and begin to affirm this shared humanity by clapping. The role of the church in the city is to be involved in practices that speak of a happily ever after love story. Those are what we call kingdom stories, stories of a world far away where all the suffering and wrongs of the world are forever made right in the love of a king who removes all injustice. While all around the world is deconstructing what it means to be human, at our core, we all hope that someone would show us the way to reconstruct what it means to flourish as a human race. We want to see something worth clapping for. That is your role, and that is my role. The role of the church in the city is to engage in the practices of God, the God becoming human, dying and rising again, reborn practices that connect the very core of the human heart with her king. 
In this era, and in this moment of history, we are offered this grand mission of embodying the practices of Jesus that are capable of reconstructing the cosmos. As Timothy Keller says, the church is to be a new society in which the world can see what family dynamics, business practices, race relations, and all of life can be under the kingship of Jesus Christ. Invitation number three. I have suggested that the core work of the church is to occupy a space in the city as a living, dynamic image of new creation in Christ. Jesus invites us to follow and to seek, but he also provides a third gracious invitation. In Matthew 11:28 to 30, Jesus said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This invitation helps us to understand the posture from which we follow Jesus and seek his kingdom and his justice. The context for this actually begins in Matthew 11, 20 to 24, which is Jesus' denouncement of Chorazin and Bethsaida. Although mighty works were done in them, they refused to turn to Jesus. Even the mighty works of the Son of God were not enough for them. Immediately following this denouncement, we read in Matthew 11:25 to 27, where Jesus prays and thanks God that it is those who are like little children to whom belief comes. It is in the context of this juxtaposition between independent, self-willed cities where mighty works are done and the revelation of God to little children that this third invitation makes its way to us. Jesus invites the weary and worn to come to him, and he promises them rest. This invitation goes out to those who have been laboring on their own and are heavy burdened. Those trying to make sense of the world and find pathways to meaning and significance through the kingdoms of this world. They are often trying to build a better world here on earth, perhaps through research, study, education, investment, or plain hard work. All the while, they're aware in an eerie way of their own inadequacy. They are the Chorazins and Bethsaidas of this world. You and I are the Chorazins and Bethsaidas of this world at times. Jesus says, I can give you rest from this work of building your own kingdom. However, you need to take my yoke upon you. You need to willingly give up your independence. You need, in other words, to become like a little child. Jesus says to those who are childlike in faith, fear not, little flock, for it is the Father's pleasure to give you a kingdom. What is this yoke that Jesus invites us to take on ourselves and to share with him? Jesus is the image of the invisible God, and we are to be images of God. We learn how to be that image when we become yoked with Jesus Christ in the new creation work he is doing in this world. When we take on this yoke of Jesus, we will learn from Jesus about being meek and lowly. To be lowly is literally to be close to the ground. Jesus certainly came close to the ground when he left heaven to join us here in Ephesians 4, 8 to 10, tell us that story. To be meek 
is to have the disposition of spirit where we accept God's dealings with us as good. And it is the opposite of a person who is independent and self-reliant. A little child is small in stature. They're low to the ground. When we become like little children, we become able to rest in the company of Jesus, who is matching his stride to ours and holding our hands so we can keep up. Jesus said, truly I say to you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 18, 2-4. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, and you will find rest for your souls. I think the greatest example I've ever seen of people meek and lowly in heart who were resting in Jesus was in June 2017. I was living in Thunder Bay, Ontario, the most at-risk city in all of Canada, church planting with my husband. Thunder Bay harbors extreme racism between white Western European peoples who settled there and built a city of about 120,000 and the 65 Aboriginal villages of Algonquin-speaking tribes who surround the city. In June 2017, the racial crisis in the city had reached another peak. Every three or four weeks, the body of an indigenous teen was washing up on the shores of the Kaministiqua River that separates the city in two. The mayor of the city and the chief of police were under investigation by the province for corruption related to racism. On June 1st, 2017, the family of Tammy Kiosh, a 17-year-old girl whose body had been found in the river, arrived in Thunder Bay. They came from the predominantly Christian tribe, North Caribou First Nation, to Thunder Bay to do a prayer walk. The chief of Tammy's reserve carried a large cross at the front of the walk, and we walked from City Hall to the river where Tammy's body was found. The tribal chief prayed there, preached over 2 Kings 2, and we all sang the song, To the river I am going, bringing sins I cannot bear. The press showed up, as did protesters with anti-racism placards. The mother of Tammy went to a makeshift podium and said words to this effect. I worship a creator who made us all, and his name is Jesus Christ. He made it possible for me to be forgiven and for me to offer the same forgiveness to this city. Take away your placard seeking your political agenda. I'm not here to protest anything. I'm here to say it's time for healing healing between our nations. And healing will come when we all join hands before the Creator and commit to living with each other in peace. The protesters put their signs away and we marched in silence from the river to the police station. There a crowd gathered. The chief of police refused to come out to speak to Tammy's family and tribe. An emissary came out to bring regards. Tammy's mother shook hands with that emissary and with tears flowing down her cheeks, she turned to the crowd and offered words of healing and peace to the police services of Thunder Bay. At the time, I sat on five sub-councils of City Hall in Thunder Bay, and I'd been around the mayor, the deputy mayor, and the city councillors in multiple meetings for two years. They rarely wanted to hear what the church community had to say about Jesus Christ. But on this day, in the face of such lowliness and meekness, in the face of a woman whose soul was 
evidently at rest in God while the whole city was in uproar. They all removed their hats. They all bowed their heads. And they all said the prayer Jesus taught us to say with Tammy's family. Taking the yoke of Jesus and learning from him to be meek and lowly in heart will give us rest for our souls. His yoke is easy and his burden light, not because life is not full of horrible tragedies, anxiety and sorrow upon sorrow, but because the one who carries that burden with us has already been raised from the dead. He is a conquering king and he has begun the work of reconstructing the entire cosmos. And he calls you to join him in that work. The resurrected Jesus will do the heavy lifting. He's already come low to the earth so that he can share his yoke with you. In this season of Eastertide, Jesus has given us three gracious invitations that are designed to help Park Street Church with this task of occupying a space in the city as a living, dynamic image of new creation in Jesus Christ. But have you noticed the person who's making the invitation to you? Jesus is the God with nail-pierced hands who comes to you personally and asks, Will you follow me? Will you share this yoke with me? I'll carry it for you. I'll do the heavy lifting. I want you to be with me where I am. Hours before his arrest and crucifixion, Jesus said these words, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. If you do not know Jesus, and if you are far from Jesus, I hope you hear this word from Jesus. Just as he is about to embark on the final steps of the cross, he says, I want you to be with me where I am. I want you to be at rest. Stop working to build a better world in your own strength. You look so tired. Follow me. Seek my kingdom, my righteousness and justice. Take my yoke upon you and you will find rest for your soul. Christian, a few lines later in that same prayer, Jesus said, I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. I in them. Fiery, cloudy, pillar in you. The task of the church is to occupy a space in the city as a living, dynamic image of new creation in Christ. Join us this week for the conference for the church in the city as we continue to explore these themes and come closer to Jesus. Amen.